Hello, everybody. Recording live from somewhere. Welcome to the Sickle Cycle Podcast, a monthly conversation about sickle cell disease. I'm your host, Charlotte Curtis. So I'm so excited that you have tuned in because I have two wonderful guests that will be joining me today to discuss sickle cell disease. So for me, it was really important that as a patient, the first episode be about a patient's experience living with this illness. And I have two people that are from D.C., and they both have SS disease. SS is also known as sickle cell anemia. There are four common types of sickle cell disease. One is SS. Second one is SC, which is what I have. Third one is beta thalassemia. And then the fourth one is beta zero thalassemia. All of these complications that people experience with this illness, it ranges from different types of people, different backgrounds, different experiences, but what's important is to hear their perspective. And so I would like to introduce you, Miss Yolanda Johnson and Shanetta Richardson. And I would like you both to begin by saying hi to the audience, um, letting them know your age, and then also discussing when you were first diagnosed with sickle cell disease. Hello, my name is Shanetta. I'm 40 um, years old. I have SS. I was diagnosed with sickle cell disease at birth. Sickle cell disease runs in my family, and my grandmother has it. So um, we already had some type of knowledge of what sickle cell disease is. And even prior to me being born, um, Howard had a sickle cell center for sickle cell disease, and they gave my parents counseling to... Um, know how to take care of a child with sickle cell disease. Hello, and my name is Yolanda Johnson. I am 69 years old. I was diagnosed by a little country black doctor in Virginia in Middlesex County at the age of two. My mother had taken me to the beach in Hampton, and when I got out, I was going through all these convulsions in my body, and she was, I was screaming and hollering. And she took me to this doctor, and he diagnosed what I had. But from that point, I didn't know, we didn't know who had it. Mm. Uh, we didn't know that it was genetic. We knew nothing about sickle cell. And this doctor explained to us the medical part, but that was it. It was nothing he could do for me. And so... We just went through a process of whatever works, you know. Mm -hmm. But for 20 years, I just yelled, screamed, hollered. My parents would take 24 hours to rub me down, make me calm me down so that the cells would, you know, go back to normal, hopefully. And that's the way my life was for 20 years. It's so interesting that different perspectives for you, Miss Yolanda, no one knew anything about sickle cell, and that's how it was for my family. Like, when I was born, it was more so of, like, what is sickle cell disease? How do we um, care for Charlotte since she has this illness, and what does that mean for the quality of her life? And then for you, Shanetta, you had the opportunity of having a grandmother that had the disease, um, knew about the disease, could tell you about the disease. How did that impact your life? And also, how did that translate to you having kids and and raising children that knew about sickle cell disease as well? Um, so my grandmother, she had the disease, and she had a son with the disease. 
So growing up, um, she knew when I was having a bad day. She knew when, okay, it's time for her to go to the hospital. She's not going to make it to school today. And one of the telltale signs in um, children and newborns when they're diagnosed with sickle cell and they're in so much pain and that they're crying are swollen hands and feet. Mm-hmm. even a fever because they cannot communicate. So mm-hmm. those were the telltale signs that a child was having a crisis. And me having, I have three daughters, two grandchildren. All of my daughters have the trait. So growing up with a mom with sickle cell was a little difficult for them because I would be in the hospital from days to a whole consecutive year I've been in there. Um, a crisis in my spine where it temporarily paralyzed me from the neck down. So I had to learn how to walk again. I had to learn how to use my hands again, which was a very humbling experience because I couldn't do anything for myself, let alone my children. Even with my oldest daughter, the first eight months of her life, I was in intensive care fighting for my own. And I was like, oh, my God, my child's not going to know me. You know, so it's it's been a challenging experience, but glory be to God, because <laughs> without him, I wouldn't be here. You know, yeah. so it was hard. So my children had to grow up a little bit sooner than others. So my older daughter know how to budget and finance at the age of nine. Oh, know you how to pay. That? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Pay bills. Miss Yolanda, you did the same mm-hmm. thing? Okay. My middle child, she knew how to, she was the motherly. She knew how to get them, the girls ready for school. She knew how to do hair. And the baby girl, she knew how to cook. So they were all chipping in to help each other. And some siblings don't have that close relationship where they come together and bond like that. So I thank God that that's how my girls were raised and brought up. So they just stepped in. And then they say, okay, mommy's not feeling good. What do you need? You know, so it's been times where I've been in the hospital and it's on holidays. They go to my window, 4th of July, and they say, okay, we're going to shoot some fireworks so mommy can see too. And, and that's why family is important. A good support team, a good support group is always a plus because they step in and you have those friends that say, okay, let me do the girls here. You know, let me see if they have homework. Let me help them with their homework. So having a support team behind you while you're going through this disease is very important. Yeah, I thank God every day for my mother and my father. Because in my case, we didn't know what was going on. Yeah. We It was a day-by-day experience. And so there was nothing that they could do. We took me to the children's hospital here. We, I've been to, I went to Howard Hospital. I didn't get anything until I was, you know, almost 20 years old. So I just suffered, but it made me stronger. Mm-hmm. And then as far as my kids go, I have kids in two different generations. <laughs> one is turning 50 and one just turned 33. So they were like single kids. They really were raised as only children. But I made sure that they had friends around and mm-hmm. people around so that when I did have I was absent or I was in the bed and I couldn't get out of the bed. You know, I contracted osteomyelitis in my leg and they thought 
at first they just thought, oh, it's just something small. And then they went in and they had to take out my whole ankle. So it was a year I was spent in the hospital. I couldn't walk. I couldn't drive. I could, you know, you just had, like you were saying, with your spine problems. But my children accepted what was going on and my parents were there for them. So it made it easier. And then I had a brother that died from SS at 33. So that kind of took the the family by surprise because I had always thought it was going to be me. I had always taught my children, hey, you have to learn these things because mom's not going to be here all the time. And I just said, God, help me to do the right thing with these children so that when I leave this earth, I can feel comfortable that they can carry them. Why did you think that? Did a physician tell you that? <laughs> yes, a physician told me when I was 14 that I was not going to make it to 15. And the whole time I was 14, I wouldn't go to sleep. I would like, pass out in my bed. And then when I woke up on my 15th birthday, January 15, 1965. Thank you, Lord. I said, God, I'm here. I'll be here, and I'm not listening to these doctors. <laughs> I, I paid attention to me. I learned my body. I knew what I could do, what I couldn't do. Like, I can't run. You know, running, I, you know, we play games and stuff. Like, I couldn't do no serious running. Even as a child? Even as a child, you know. I had to sit and watch, you know, and watch the others because there were certain things I just couldn't do because it would bring on a sickle cell attack. And then sometimes as a kid, you said, the heck with this. I want to play. <laughs> I want to play. I'll suffer. Right. I know what's going to happen, but I had a good time. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the way I was. And it's like sickle cell puts so many limitations on our life. Oh, it does. And the thing about it is we all have sickle cell, but it affects us differently. differently. And People grow up with the perception that sickle cell is a generalized disease, like, oh, you have sickle cell, so it's going to affect you the same. No. Sickle cell is an individualized disease, and it affects everyone different. Well, let me tell you. Now, I grew up in the 50s and 60s where they didn't, it was a black disease, they thought, and so it wasn't a lot of research, but thank God for the Roland B. Scott, he finally got the word out. Yes. But... I could, only my real close friends in the neighborhood knew what I had because if I told somebody else, one of the kids, they treated you like a piranha, like they did for AIDS. Oh, we're going to get this disease. Is it contagious? It's contagious and you're going to get it. So I didn't tell anybody until I graduated from high school, except like my close friends because they knew. And everybody else just said, well, she's just a sick child. But my mother would go to the school, talk to all the teachers and let them know what was going on, that this is what I had. She's going to miss a lot of days, you know. And I only had one year of going to school from the time I was kindergarten till the time I got my master's that (laughs) I had a perfect attendance. Oh, wow. (laughs) Thank God. That's just the way it is. But you get strong, and you carry on. You you determine. You don't give up hope, and that's the one thing I try to tell all these young people with SS: don't give up hope. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have hope. You have to say, "I can do this." You know, I may have to do it differently, 
but I can do it. Yeah. yeah. At an early age, I, I created this motto, sickle cell don't control me, I control it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to let it define or take over my life. And anything that I put my mind to, I'm going to achieve. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it may take me a while to achieve it because of what I'm going through, but I'm going to achieve it. Exactly. Even when it came to education, because see, I missed a whole lot of school. I was always in the hospital. So perfect attendance never happened for me. And even when it came to high school diploma, I got my GED confined to a hospital bed. And I said, okay, and I'm going to keep going. Mm -hmm. And that's when I kept going. I got my college degrees. I have two degrees, and it's like it don't matter what I go through or how long it takes me. I'm doing this for me. Yeah. And sickle cell is not going to define who I am. Exactly. And it's not going to keep putting limitations on my life because it's like you said, you can't play with the other kids. You get a cut, you get an infection, you're going into a crisis. The cold weather, the weather's changing, the season's changing. You're going into a crisis. And some kids didn't understand that. I went through bullying. Yeah. You know, so it's like, and then even when it comes to relationships or dating. Yeah. <laughs> they say, I say, oh, I have sick. Oh, is it contagious? Can I catch it? Mm-hmm. So I'm spending a whole day explaining what and educating <laughs> what sickle cell is. Because I think make- so many people have heard about sickle cell disease, but they don't know what it is, right? Yeah. Like they've heard it in media, heard it in society, but they really don't know one person that's impacted by it. Or if they do, they're like, oh, I have a cousin. She's always in the hospital. But that's mm-hmm. about it, right? That's like, it. they don't know the complications one experiences. They don't know even how to deal with somebody that has sickle cell disease. And I think that's why the education awareness piece is so important. It is. And just even thinking about the complications, we all experience different complications dealing with sickle cell disease. But could you share, like, some of the complications that you've had and how did you persevere and overcome that? And also, how has it impacted your daily life? Yeah. Well, like she was saying, you know, you have to you set a goal. I'm going to do it. It may take me five years. Everybody else, it takes 50 minutes, mm. you know, but I'm going to get it done. Yeah, I know, that's you right. Know, I'm going to get it done, and I've told my children the same thing. Even they don't have the sickle cell disease, that's the way life is. Don't let life rule you, rule life, you yeah. know? Like she was saying, don't let sickle cell rule you, rule sickle cell. Mm-hmm. And you have to have that type of attitude. To survive. This is not a pleasant disease. It is not. What are some of the complications you experience? I have had every major organ, every organ that's not a major one taken out. I don't have no spleen. I don't have no gallbladder. I mean, I'm empty. <laughs> okay. <I have laughs> but because of that, though, you get infections more easily. Yeah. So when I got my spleen removed, it was like night and day. Like after I got the spleen removed, if I was traveling on a flight, going somewhere, I would get a cold, infection. Somehow they'll shut me down completely. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and that does it. And so you have to be careful. And you just have to be aware. And, and it's funny know. you say that. You have to be aware. Because when we are aware and educated about our disease and we go to the ER, they treat us as if we're drug addicts. Oh, no question. Oh, because we're educated about our disease mm-hmm. and we know what... Uh, Methods that we that we need. What dosage of medicine you need, and they say that's too much. Mm-hmm. You can't have this. You just sit here so you can get some drugs. And I said, Do I look like a drug addict? Mm-hmm. You know, 
I've, I'm experiencing these things, you know, and that's why a lot of times I go, try not to go to other hospitals other than Howard because they really understand. And I have, I'm trying to get a protocol, at least in the district, for all the hospitals to have the same protocol to treat sickle cell disease. Because if you go to Georgetown, you get treated one way. Mm -hmm. George Washington is another way. You go to Washington Hospital Center, it's another way. So you never know where you're going to be in when you have a, a pain crisis a, a or any crisis. crisis. Or what's the nearest hospital? But if you had a protocol that was consistent, I think we would be treated a lot better. I agree. I think that's what's needed, and I'm not sure how to go about it, but it is something that I want to suggest, and I don't, I'm going to try to find out how to do it. When you go to the emergency room, what are some of the things that you usually do? Like, I know some people have a sheet of paper that they write down everything. They write down notes from their physicians that, so that, like, literally the physician can advocate for them. I'm one of those. So, because sometimes we're in so much pain that we we cannot communicate for ourselves. So I take a sheet of paper, it lists, my, it lists my diagnosis, it lists my medications, any surgeries I didn't have, my allergies, because those are the four main questions they're going to ask you when you go in there. Mm-hmm. What, what is your diagnosis? What medications are you taking? What are you allergic to? What surgeries have you had in the past? So it's like those are the four main ones. And if they have that information, because I'm in so much pain that I can't communicate, then they can at least try to start me on something to manage or try to manage my pain, you know? Well, that's, you know, and I'm one who likes to write down things. I will admit that a lot of times I've had crises where I don't have it written in my pocketbook, or I don't have the specific wallet or so. But if I'm, but I'm always with somebody, so they know that hey, they know my doctor's name and they know I have what kind of sickle cell I have, and they say, "What? Well, look at her chart," because I think I have visited every hospital in the, the in the district, in the district, and Maryland and Northern Virginia. I have, you know had problems. I've been in hospitals in Nevada. I've been in hospitals in California. I've been in hospitals wherever I go. So I should have been more prevalent and more aware of taking this information, but I'm always of the fortunate, thank God, whenever I've had gone in the hospital, I can at least tell the doctor what's wrong. Yeah. And that's where this new app come in, Sickleoscope. Yeah. Now you're going to have your phone because everybody going somewhere with this phone. So now it's an app where we can track what we're going through on a daily great. basis. And that's specific for sickle cell patients? Yes. Okay. And it's a diary. Mm-hmm. And if you record every day, even your medications or your allergies, you can take that. Okay. You have your phone. Show them that. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes... Idea. The pain is unbearable. I mean, it hurts when somebody touched the bed. Even when they try to fix your cover, it's painful. Talk about a pain crisis, because I think people don't know what a pain crisis feels like. 
To me, it feels like it's a burning sensation in my legs. And to the point that I felt like, oh, I just want them to cut my leg off. But (laughs) that's not helpful because it's going to move to your arms. It's going to move to another part of your joints. But how do you deal with pain crisis? How do you manage it? Well, because for the first 20 years of my life, I had no medication. I do it a lot differently. My tolerance to pain is very high. And... I, it's all up in my head. Uh, I, I had to control that pain for 20 years. So now I still control it, but now I can control it with medication. But uh, it's worse than having a baby. It's worse than a toothache. It, because it doesn't centralize. It's everywhere. You know, one minute it's in your hand, the next minute it's in your legs, and then it's in your back. You can't turn your head. You mm. can't eat. You can't, you can't see. You, you just you, you just ball up into a knot and you try to do it that way and then you try to relax and take breath. <laughs> you know, because you need to relax. That's the mm. biggest thing I learned without medication is that you need it to relax because what happens when those cells start to gum up and turn into a banana shape and get gummy if you are not relaxed it rushes them to it so therefore you have even more coming that way so if you relax you know and how do you relax like control breathing yeah control breathing and praying Okay. <laughs> That's what I'm praying. <laughs> okay. Oh, God, I pray you got baby. To help me. I know that I what I'm going through. You know what I'm going through. Yes. And I take my breath and I just pray I, and pray and breathe. <laughs> I call Jesus and all his disciples. Okay. okay. Really, really. <laughs> I name them. For me, it's like a sharp, achy pain. And you know how you get a cramp mm-hmm. or a charley horse mm-hmm. times that to a thousand. Yeah. And it's like, oh, my God. And you feel it moving and traveling throughout your body mm-hmm. to the point where you can't walk. Mm-hmm. You can't do anything. And it happens sporadically. We could just be sitting here. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden it, it happens. And I usually say, okay, God, why? Why am I always in pain? Like, what do, does it feel like to be normal without pain, just for a day? That's what I wanted to know, and I found out one day. <laughs> and I even had, I even went through the process of the bone marrow transplant. Mm-hmm. Oh. oh. And it didn't work. Yeah. What? And I so had talk 100%. to me about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, like, let's dissect that. So I went through, my brother was a match. Mm-hmm. He was 100% match in every test. He gave three times the amount of bone marrow cells. I had to go through chemotherapy, radiation. I was away from my kids for probably six months in 2010. And I would tell the doctor, I'm still feeling sickle cell pain. He was like, oh, no, it's in your head. Come to find out it wasn't in my head and it didn't work for me. And this was at NIH. And I'm like, Y'all guaranteeing that it's going to be a cure, and this is the new, and, it, and, and it's not. It's not. But why, why did they say it didn't work? And I don't, I think, because there was another young lady that went with me, and she had the bone marrow transplant probably a month before I did, but it didn't work for her. And they said maybe because it was a male and a female mm-hmm. and that a chromosomes. Could be. That could be. You know, so... It didn't work for the male and female. Mm-hmm. So it worked for others, but didn't work. So now they're 
um, trying to alter it or make some type of adjustment. It's tweeted a little bit. Tweeted, and they're saying that I will have to do more chemotherapy and radiation. And the total body radiation takes a toll. And then the chemotherapy in itself is is horrible yeah, experience. Cancer patients go through yeah, that. Yeah, I lost my hair, and my immune system was low, so I couldn't eat anything off the grill. My uh, fresh fruits and salad had to be, like, cleaned and washed and everything. And then when I go to a restaurant, it was like I couldn't have my food wait and sit and wait for everybody else. They had to bring mine right out. Mm-hmm. So it was just like a life-changing mm-hmm. And just to get the devastating news that, you know, you have this mindset, oh, I'm cu- I'm, I'm about I'm- to be cured. And yeah. then for it to hit you like, it didn't work for oh, me. God. That's terrible. I mean, I, I can't even imagine going through something like that. And at 69, what I do do is I clinical trials. I promote clinical trials because, you know, we don't know what's going to happen for who. But maybe what I test I took can help you, help mm-hmm. your children or help your grandchildren or help my grandchildren. I know it's not going to help me. And I go into these trials knowing that it's not going to help me. I'm 69 and I don't want to try nothing new. You know, I've done it this way. <laughs> if it ain't broke, <laughs> don't right. mess with it, you know. And that's the way I I have to look at things, you know. And But it... It's treated, everybody does it differently. Everybody, there is no set way. Uh, you have sickle cell anemia, and it's going to work A, B, C, and D. Now, we can say, well, at age so-and-so, maybe the girls can do this, that, and that. But what are they going to say for me? There's nobody else. I'm the oldest one in the clinic. Mm-hmm. And I have, at Howard University. At Howard University. I'm 69, and we don't live that long. I mean... To be honest, to be you, honest, you know the doctors, you know they set certain age limits and stuff, but because they've been giving me a death sentence yeah, since I've been going, and they told me fifty, you know, which I was happy to hear fifty after fifty. You know? <laughs> I know, I know. So, so you know, every day when I wake up, I say, "Thank you, Lord." Thank you. I have a purpose. I don't know what it is. Maybe mm-hmm. I haven't felt. Maybe it's this podcast. Maybe it's meeting other people that have sickle cell. I don't know. I don't question it anymore. I just say, hey, God, I'm in your hands. Yeah. I'm going to do what you want me to do, I think. You know, now I haven't been no perfect angel. I haven't done this, that, and the other. And I'll tell you one thing I found out back in 19. 19- 1968, the effects of marijuana, how it helped me with my sickle cell. Tell me about that, please. Let me tell you, 1968, I was introduced to marijuana as a, you know, I was in college, you know, having fun. Mm-hmm. But one day, I had a sickle cell attack, and I was having so much pain in the dorm. And I didn't want to go over to the infirmary just yet. And I said, I need to just not even be here. Let me go smoke a joint. I did that. And then I noticed, wait a minute, something's happening here. My pain level is not like it was. Is it in my mind? 
Am I just imagining this? And I, I said, well, let me try this again. <laughs> and I found that when <clears throat> I would have attack or feel that, because you can feel it coming on too. Mm-hmm. I rush. I said, somebody got to get me some. Mm-hmm. And now, it's all, we, sickle cell patients are on the uh, legal marijuana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. they're realizing that the THC in it, but you know, 1968 was my year. And I had to do something, you know, and mm-hmm. when I found that it worked, then I told my parents, I said, look, I know what they're saying about addicts and all of this. I said, but I'll tell you, I've never had pain medicine. See, at this point, I hadn't had a uh, shot. Okay. Right. And I said, this seems to lessen it. So I'm going to do it. Now, I'm sorry if you don't approve. But then they noticed Hey, she feeling better. She was screaming and hollering a minute ago, and she's not doing that. So then my father said, okay, I'll go along with it. He said, but only if you're getting ready to have a sickle cell day. He said, I don't want you doing it as a recreation drug. I said, okay. But, you know, that's the way it was. I grew up in the 60s. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You talked about your experience dealing with family members, about educating about the disease and practicing different things for yourself as well. How did you manage dealing with partners um, in terms of education? Oh, (laughs) you know, unless it was really serious or looked like it was going to be serious, Mm -hmm. I didn't want to go through it. Because, like I said, I was... Treated like it was going, you could get it by touching me and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Just like the people like with AIDS. That, that's the way I was exercised, ostracized. So I just didn't say nothing. Now, if I thought the relationship was going to get a little heavier, then I would say, okay, I'll tell you what I have and you can deal with it or not. Yeah. And it's up to you. You can deal with it or not. But let me know right now because I'm being straight up with you. Yeah. And I even educate um, my children. Mm-hmm. Even when they have boyfriends, I'm like, find out their status. Yeah. Do they have the trait? You know, because you have the trait. You can't marry with somebody with the trait. You can't have children with somebody that and has the trait. And my daughter, my granddaughter, her father has the trait as well. So they tested when she was in the womb. But she don't have she don't have the disease. She has the trait. Mm-hmm. But he didn't know his status. So I'm like, okay, we need to go get you checked. Yeah. You know, even with my kid's father, I was like, okay, you need to be checked for the trait. You know, because I have the disease. Yeah. My children gonna have the trait. But if if I can try to control my children or avoid my children going through the things that I'm going through, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. How did you deal with education? Was it, did you have physicians on the phone that were like, can you tell him about this? Or did you bring him <laughs> to the doctor? Like, what happened with that? Okay. So, I was um, my kid's father. And I went to the doctor and I told my doctor, I have a boyfriend, you know. He was like, okay, I need to meet him. So, he was like, next time you come to your appointment, bring him. 
And he sat down and he had a whole in-depth conversation about sickle cell, what it is, how it affects me. And he like, if, if you're not going to be around, then, then leave her alone right now because this is what, what's going on. This is what she's going through. These are the complications of this disease. Well, see, you were lucky. I was. You, you were really blessed. Dr. Ron at Howard yeah. University Hospital. Because, see, when I was growing up, I didn't know nothing about no tests. You know, mm-hmm. all I knew was I had the disease and you didn't. That's all I knew. I didn't know that if you had to trade, uh, if the other person had to trade. And I had a daughter and I was really blessed. I didn't know. Uh, when I was 19, I had no idea. But she came out with just a trait. And, you know, her father, I, later on in years, I found out her father didn't have anything. But... At that particular time, I I wouldn't have thought of that. I mean, it wasn't in, like I said, and not until the late 60s, early 70s, did the world know about sickle cell. And and it's funny that you say that because the world still really don't know about sickle cell. And and I created a blog and a website called IamSickleCell.org where you get your resources, where you get the inspiration, where we encourage, uplift, you know, promote. Because there's a lot of individuals out here with sickle cell that's doing some wonderful things, you know. And even to the point where people reach out to me through social media, I will pray with them, even parents talking about my child is in the hospital. She's talking about giving up. She don't want to do this. She's depressed. And if I can help them in any area or either spread awareness or education, because we still need to educate the, the physicians in this hosp- in different hospitals like Holy Cross. Yeah, that's why like I wanted this protocol, you yeah, know, so. so that the physicians could understand it and what you're doing is great and I wish that I had been younger and my age was in the technology but I'm almost 70 years so what I do is when I see people who need like when I go to the clinic I tell people all the time don't give up you look like you don't Mm -hmm. feel good today you know I try to encourage Encourage. people when I see them or you know, if somebody says, well, we, like you, you call me about the sickle cell. Okay, I'll do that. You know, anything. That Any makes opportunity. It, you know, but the technology is new to me. I don't quite understand all of what's going on. I'm trying to learn. You know, my son say, Ma, take this iPhone and learn it. You know, <laughs> it's like that. Yeah. You know, but so I do, you know, because he knows that I, I'm into education and everything. So I get on this thing and I look and see what happens. I can do a lot of things with that uh-huh. now. But <laughs> I still am not proficient enough to say, do this blog. I tried it and it, it just wasn't working. I didn't yeah. get the people there. And, and so, you know, I kind of, that's the one thing I can say in life that I did give up on. <laughs> it's okay. You no, know? but you're and, using your voice today and that's yeah. the goal, right? It's whatever voice, whatever gift that you have to help someone else. Yeah. yeah, even in, like, we talk about the family, we talk about the friends, we talk about the dating, mm-hmm. but how many how many times have we been discri- discriminated against in a professional field? Oh, yeah. And they don't know what sickle cell is or they don't understand what it is. And just last, a couple of months ago, my supervisor said, well, what is that? I have to research that. Is that even a disease? 
You, you know, it, the ignorance is crazy, and people don't know what to say to you. And I'd rather you say nothing than to say stupid stuff. I I really do not like ignorant questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you want to know something, you can express it in a way that uh, I can be pleased with wanting to answer it. But I can't do that as long as you. Well, get away from me and tell me that. No, no. And mm-hmm. I, I went through that, and I don't want anybody else to go through that. But, you know, they found out that, sure, it's in Africa, it's here, it's in Black America, but Mediterraneans have it, too. Mm-hmm. You go to Greece. India. India. These people mm-hmm. have sickle cell, too. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know? And with the world changing like it is with the interracial marriages or interracial children, you know, the world needs to know about this because mm-hmm. it is all over the world. And it's important. And it's important. And we can't, we don't have a cure for it yet, but we can control how many people get it if we be aware of who we are having sex with. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to take a lot of things. Know your status. Mm-hmm. You have to know your status. Would that be your uh, final words? I want to ask you what would be your <laughs> final words to our viewers? Don't give up. Don't give yes, up. To hope and pray and do. Live your life like you can monitor what's going on with your body. Use this app that the young lady's talking about. That is the best thing you can do. And go out here and say, hey, I got to go. I'm going to meet it. I don't yeah. care how long it takes. Never give I'm up. I'm going to meet it. Never give up. And, you know, Bill uh, Valvano from North Carolina State, and that's what he promoted. He had cancer, and it was terrible. But he, they have the Jimmy V Foundation for Cancer, and his message was never give up. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, and that's the way I always felt about sickle cell. And when I heard him say that, I was so thrilled. And the, I have to tell you this. The year that his school won the NCAA, I told everybody from Jump Street that, North Carolina State's going to win this. And they told me I was crazy. If I had betted it in Vegas, I'd been a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> um, but never give up. My last words is, sickle cell don't control you. You control it. I like that. Yes, I like that, too. I like that. Thank you both for joining me. Well, thank you for Thank you. I appreciate you both sharing your stories, and I'm sure it impact those living with the disease and also those that are trying to learn more about the disease. Well, I pray. Thank you for listening to the Sickle Cycle Podcast.